You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening. everyone. Welcome to the Master Gardener Hour, a one-hour show where we talk to garden professionals and gardeners from all walks of life, all growing a variety of different plants. My name is Kate Copsey and I am the host of this show. I am an active Master Gardener and have kept the certification for over a decade through six different states. You can contact me from my webpage katecopsey.com or through America's Web Radio Station site. If you have questions about some in your garden, please post it on our Facebook page and maybe we can answer it on the air. This morning, we are going to head out west to one of the few places in January where people are actually growing things. Uh, so we're going over to Claire Splain over in California. Good morning, Claire. Hi, Kate. Yes. Um, so let's talk with a little about your background in California. Have you always lived in that state? I have. I actually um, am still living in my hometown um, where my mom's family has, has been for quite a number of years. The only other area I've ever lived in is I, I went to college in Los Angeles. So um, that's my only other <laughs> experience with a, a different climate and um, so I, I've kind of had it easy, I think, as far as my gardening attempts, because we have uh, a very um, forgiving climate for, for plants. Oh, and I, I think, you know, with droughts and things like that, um, you know, it must be a little challenging. Um, but in the Midwest, which I've gardened for quite a while there, although now we're on the East Coast, um, the terrain is what I would call fairly flat and fa- fairly cool. Um, but California just in that one state, has everything from coastal regions to mountains and straddles a long way north to south. So how does that make a difference to the different garden areas and what you can do in those different areas? It makes a huge difference. I mean, we have everything. There's, there's um, high desert, low desert, um, as you mentioned, the coastal influence, um, the Central Valley, which is, you know, where most of our agriculture comes from and, and indeed where most of the country's agriculture comes from is, um, you know, it's a great growing area, but it's, um, it has its own little peculiarities of climate. Um, very hot in the, the summers, very cold in the winters. Um, and, uh, so yeah, we, we have it all. It's the state of California is like a, uh, a, a little, uh, microcosm of the world basically and and what what about the basic ph um i'm going to say m- most of the rest of the country has a fairly um shall, shall we say um a moderate ph and it's not kind of um it's mainly clays and things like that and i seem to recall that that you guys are way more acid uh, sorry alkaline than those of us on this side of the great divide <laughs> Yeah, and and that changes a little bit in some areas. More, I think, in the mountain areas, um, it gets a little bit uh, more acidic. 
But, yeah, I think we do tend towards um, a more alkaline soil. Like I think my soil, which is pretty sandy, um, where I haven't uh, or if I don't keep on top of um, amending it, adding uh, compost all the time, uh, it gets very sandy and the um, pH would be 8 or above. So that makes it pretty challenging. And I was kind of stunned when it, that really sunk in my head and made me realize that's why I was um, struggling a little bit to get uh, the garden to be as productive as I thought it would be. And I think compost basically helps all sorts of um, gardening. Um, and I'm actually on sandy soil as well, but on the other side of the continent, um, although we do have some clay areas. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, um, and actually, uh, because we're a little more acid, I guess adding compost and things like that, um, you have to then maybe sometimes adjust it back down again. But uh, the compost, I think, is good whether you're in sand or clay. Um, but, uh, but most of the country uses the USDA growing zone guide for plant hardiness and some of them use the heat zone map to say really sort of how how warm a plant really croaks out and things like that and how short winters are which is also a ramification of um, you know whether something's going to survive but from what I've heard California gardens or gardeners prefer the sunset zone and that if I recall has got a thousand and one different um, growing zones is that right they do they have um, quite a few more I think it's it's I know it goes above 20 I can't remember exactly how high the number of zones go with sunset I'm in um, whereas with the USDA I'm now in zone 10a we used to be 9b until they redid the map a few years ago um, so 10B, I mean 10A for um, the USDA zone, but zone 17 for sunset. And California gardeners really do love the uh, the sunset uh, guides because they help uh, help to accommodate our weird little microclimates. Um, and the USDA zones don't don't accommodate that at all. Um, they just don't don't take that data into consideration. And it makes a huge difference in how you garden. So, so what would be the coolest area according to a USDA? Probably up in a mountain area or something yeah, like that. Yeah, in the that? mountains, I think in the in the northern uh, the the northeast corner of the state probably is is the coldest, um, and uh, maybe into certain spots in the you know through down through the Sierra foothills. Um, but uh, those are areas that. <clears throat> excuse me, that, that get snow, um, and some may have snow on the ground in, well, maybe not this year, but um, in, a, in a typical year they might have snow on the ground, you know, most of the winter in the, the uh, highest region, certainly. Um, whereas here snow typically does not happen at all. I'm, I'm in the San Francisco Bay Area right across from San Francisco, and we typically would never get snow. But then every once in a while you end up with a freak occurrence like uh, happened last month where they had snow in Palm Springs. <laughs> so um, I saw. <laughs> it is bizarre. Um, and in, in those ways, you know, you, you have to sort of discount those, those freak occurrences, although as the freak occurrences 
come more rapidly, we're going to have to factor them in somehow. But we do have to pay attention to um, the, the microclimates that we have that because of um, influences like the, the coastal um, air coming in um, and uh, just our topography, it makes a, a huge difference in what we can grow where. And so, so the heat zone map is no more use to you than the generalization of the, um, the, the regular zone map then? Well, I think it, it can all be helpful to, to look at all of it um, and, and weigh it all. But, I mean, the heat zone map, then you still have to consider, for example, if you're looking at um, growing fruit trees, you still have to very much consider chill hours. So that's another element of data you have to, to take into consideration and, and do a little research on. And um, so I, you know, the, there's nothing better and nothing will replace getting to know what go, the climate is in your own backyard and recognizing that there are, um, there are different occurrences even within a normal, uh, a normal city lot, um, different, uh, regions within that lot will have uh, slightly different occurrences of temperature and, and uh, wind and all of those other areas, uh, factors that, that make a big difference. And I, and I think generally gardeners, um, they're, they're a little bit in denial sometimes. I mean, the, the, the plants sometimes exist where they shouldn't. Um, and I, I know there was a gentleman down, down in Atlanta where lilacs do not grow. He, he'd he'd uh, mail-ordered a lilac planted it in his Atlanta garden, and it thrived. Um, the plant didn't read the book <laughs> that it couldn't exactly. grow. <laughs> um, so, so do people in California do the same, type of, um, the same type of thing? Absolutely. I have lilacs aren't uh, supposed to bloom where I am, but I have one in my backyard. And I knew that it would grow because we had a lilac. Um, my dad was um, from Michigan and, and lives there again now, and he loves lilacs, so he planted a, a lilac in our garden when uh, I was growing up, and it did very well, and I remember that scent. Those flowers were just incredible. So when I got my garden, I looked for a lilac, even though it, the zone wasn't right, and I planted it, and it does fine. <laughs> um, it's just those are, um, you know, for, in, in some ways, too, there's also the horticulture industry is helping us along with that by um creating new hybrids that have different um, tolerances for climate, and that shifts some things around as well. But um, like I said, there's nothing like knowing what grows in your own particular backyard. And, and, <laughs> and you have to push the envelope a little bit sometimes too. Oh, I think so. And, but on the, because you're on, shall we say, the other side, the Rocky Mountains, um, not only are you climatically different, but I've noticed that you have birds that some of us on the other side of the continent don't have. So does this translate into making you, your uh, diseases and insect, insects different to the rest of us? It does. Um, one thing, too, that as far as insects, um, because most of the state does not have uh, the really harsh winters, we don't have the benefit of the winter being harsh enough to kill the overwintering insects. So that can create a little bit more of a problem. Um, our, our insects can be quite hardy and uh, stick around season after season. 
Um, birds, uh, that you know, that varies a lot from one region to the next, and even um, you know, as I said, I'm I'm gardening in the same town I grew up in. But it's different than it was when I grew up. You know, we have now uh, a huge influx of crows in my town, and and I don't know why it's happened, where it's come from, but we never used to have those around when I was a kid, and and they're certainly a a more um, aggressive (laughs) competition for gardeners, I think. And and I guess the the insects and things like that being a little bit different, I suppose you get aphids and all those... um nasty little things as as well as the rest of us, kind of the general guys as well, right? Yeah, I think uh, aphids are, are a, you know, a bane to every gardener's existence. And then there are other um, insects that we hear about, and we we definitely do hear about them because there, um, there might be an insect that comes along that's a real threat to the agriculture industry. And because um, the state is very protective of that industry. Yeah. Um, well, anyway, we have to go for our first commercial break here, Claire, um, but we'll be back with more from Claire Splain and California Gardening on the Master Garden Hour, and we'll be back in just a moment. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. This is America's WebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to the Master Gardener Hour. Remember, you can catch up with us on Facebook at the Master Gardener Hour. And if you miss any shows, you can find them, the archives on americaswebradio.com webpage. You can find them on iTunes and you can find them on Stitches too. This morning, we are talking gardening in California with Claire Splan. And Claire, we talked about a little about the zones and how they're different because of the microclimate. Um, so how does that translate into a gardening year? Um, how many parts of the area can, can grow all year round um, versus the rest of us, which are a little maybe more seasonal? Well, there's actually, I mean, there's very few parts of California where you can't garden all year round. Um, you know, as long as the, the ground doesn't freeze and you don't have snow on the ground, 
um, things are going to keep growing. So uh, people tend to, to, you know, they may get a little um, a little lax or put things on autopilot for the, the coldest or wettest months, but um, there's still there's still gardens out there to, to take care of. And um, and then there are the other parts where it's there's really not much to keep you out of the garden um, in the, the warmer areas, in the, the areas down south where it's it's really not not unpleasant most of the the winter. So, you know, of course you keep going. And so what about the the summers? Um, are there maybe times when you can't actually get out of the out in the garden because it's too too warm? Not so much. I mean, uh, maybe you're just accustomed to it. <laughs> yeah, that, well, that may be too. But you know, we have um, the heat waves where uh, it's you get the the triple digit uh, temperatures, and you know, of course, you don't want to be doing any heavy work out there at that time. And in the at the peak of summer, you know, in July and and August, it's not a great time to be out planting. Um, but it's, I mean, it's just a, a more stressful time for for putting new plants in the ground. So um, you, you do different things at that time. But um, it's, you know, we tend to, to look at gardens in California as an all-round adventure, all year round. And I know that um, California has had um, a drought for many years. So how has that maybe affected how people change what they grow, or has it affected? Are, are they, again, in denial of there being a drought, or has it really impacted what they grow and how they grow? Well, um, let's take lawns, for example. Um, I mean, because, as you said, we've been in drought for a number of years, but drought is sort of always at the back of our minds anyway, even when we're not in a year of drought. So um, I have seen over the last 20 to 30 years that people have really shifted um, their style of gardening, and the, and more people have um, put in landscaping that is um, xeriscaping. It's it's um, low water plants, and um, so you see more of those landscapes that are already in place, already established, and they've they've done quite nicely through the drought. Um, you also see you do see people letting their lawns go brown during the summer, um, and then you also see the people who decide they're just going to keep watering unless uh, they're strictly rationed, which only certain areas have chosen to do. Um, so it's you know there are go- always going to be the people who are um, you know kind of diehard about their lawns and. Um, I, I think that's changing slowly, though. And and so, um, do, with a typical maybe gardening year, do you have uh, both cool weather plants like the lettuce and the salads and the kales and things, as well as the heat tolerant one, ones like the beans and the tomatoes and the squashes? Um, are they all, all grown all year round, or do you start off with one maybe in what we would call winter, kind of the December January time, and then transition into the, the heat loving ones um, in the the summer months yeah there's still you know the distinct um you know cool season and and warm season um uh plants although there are some things you know we could grow say radishes pretty much any time of year 
um, lettuces, if we, um, in my area, you can grow those pretty much year-round, um, as long as you take um, precautions to protect them from the little bit of frost we might get here in the Bay Area, um, or from the extremes of the, the summer heat. Um, then, um, you know, carrots can be grown for much of the year, if not all year, and then you can just sort of leave them in the ground and pick them as you need them. Um, so, you know, we do still think in terms of, of cool season, warm season, but we just have longer growing seasons. And is, yeah, I mean, mo- most of us on on this side, um, we we have things like the the frost date, and then we count back for when it's worth starting from seed. Because particularly in in zones um, five and and below that, um, it's difficult to get things like tomatoes to um, to produce if you grow them from seed from outside. So being mild all year round, do m- many people actually bother? starting things from seed indoors and then putting the seedlings outside or do they just put the seeds directly tomato seeds and pepper seeds directly outside from from the beginning um i think some people do still like to start things um indoors um it's i mean the the advantage of of growing from seed certainly is that you can can choose from a a much wider uh, assortment of varieties um, that you won't find in your nurseries. So <clears throat> for that reason, I know people people still will always, you know, there's so many will, will opt for, for growing from seed. Um, and, I, you know, I would never start tomatoes directly in the ground because um, except, you know, in the areas where uh, you really get a lot of heat, our soil doesn't heat up. Um, intensively enough, I think, to give them the best start when they're planted directly in the ground. So I would um, give, try to give them a head start. And and actually, I always recommend to people, except in Southern California, where um, the the weather gets warmer sooner. In in the like the the Bay Area where I am, we would um, typically if, if there's no point in putting tomatoes out uh, in until late May because this, you're just not going to get enough warmth. They, they'll just sort of languish a little bit So put them yeah. too early. So, so it, it's still kind of a, a typical um, year over there as far, far as the soil has to warm up a little bit. Maybe, but, and so that, that you say that, that would be Memorial Day or before Memorial Day? Um, I, I would typically would put mine in around Memorial Day, um, but then, you know, I'm in an area where we're getting more of that coastal uh, air uh, influence. If you go not too many miles away from me, uh, further east, you go over the uh, the hills and you get a lot more heat, and then you can you can move it up a few weeks. Yeah, um, so. yeah, um, and what about things like? Um I, I buy a lot of dormant trees and shrubs, particularly fruit trees or something like that, and shrubs. I buy them when they're dormant, um, which means that they actually trans- transplant a little better because you can put them in and then they, they sort of settle for the year. Um, do, do people do that over in California? And what time of year would they fi- find it's best to put in dormant trees? Um, right now is the time when you see um, the bare root trees and uh, bare root roses in the, in the nurseries. 
and this is the the best time. We're actually um, because we're having such odd weather. Um, there's some concern about whether we're, you know, whether things are really going dormant as they should. Um, you know, I've there are a few trees of mine that were really clinging to their leaves um, well into December, and um, then we did have a, a, a few days of, of real cold uh, that I think helped to move them along into dormancy. But uh, it's it's very odd lately. I mean, last. Uh, Last year, we had um, in January. We were having such pleasant weather that um, things broke dormancy real early. And uh, so you have to be sure if you want to plant these bare root things to try to get them in as quickly as you can when we're having the uh, the cold weather, and uh, let them get started before they start to break dormancy. Before, before everything gets hot again, and uh, right. oh yes, um, and I, I guess um, you know, being, being over there, I always think that people can grow citrus. Um, that, that's kind of one of the things I would love to be able to grow outdoors. Um, can you grow that citrus like like oranges and things like that almost anywhere in California, or is it just on those um, the southern and coastal regions? No, there's a lot of citrus growing around here in in, uh, in home gardens. Um, it's best to look for the varieties that you know are um, don't require the extreme heat, which may mean that you know you want to go for some of the smaller citrus fruits. Um, there's only um, I, one or two varieties of, of say a grapefruit that I know of that will will ripen well enough where I am. Um, but you know I, I have. Um, a Meyer lemon tree here that does really well. There's, you know, Eureka lemons do well, and uh, there's a, a few oranges and uh, uh, like Satsuma mandarins that you can grow um, without any problem at all. They actually do really well, I'd and um, some of them you can, you can even grow in in containers. With, uh, so and yeah, and I, I know the um, the little or- oranges and lemons. They have such beautiful flowers um, mm-hmm. and scented er- early in the year. But yours are in the ground rather than containers. Is that right? Yes, yes. I had it actually in in a container for uh, a, the first few years, and then I put it in the ground uh, just because I wanted it to get bigger and get more fruit. Yeah, and I, I think that that would be absolutely wonderful. And I know people in Calif- um, in Florida and probably Texas as well, but that's kind of on my, I guess, shall we say it's on my wish list to be able to grow things like that in the garden. It must be wonderful to be able to just go out and pick the grapefruit for um, breakfast. And how, how, I guess it, it, um, there, there are some that, that aren't quite as hardy as others. Is that what you were saying? Yeah, some that it's not so much that they aren't hardy. I mean, if you live in an area where you're going to get um, a, an actual freeze, then you'd have to um, to probably plant them in a container where they could then get some protection somewhere um, during the winter. But um, even a little bit of frost, if it's if it's well established, it'll um, survive that. 
it's more a matter of is it going to get enough heat where you are to um, ripen the fruit. Okay, because I know I know down down in Florida, obviously, um, you know they're, they're always panicking about. Um, I, I guess the the, the fruit um, if it, and when when the freeze actually arrives. Um, but you know we need to take a quick commercial break here. When we come back, we will have more from Claire Splain and California Gardening. Uh, the Master Garden Hour will be right back. Today's consumers find themselves faced with a greater variety of choices than ever before, both in the food they eat and the information they receive about that food. Feedstuff's Food Link was created to provide you with a balanced source of information for making decisions about your family's balanced diet. Visit FeedstuffsFoodLink.com to learn about your food directly from the source, the people who work every day to provide it. FeedstuffsFoodLink.com, connecting farm to fork. Quick Steaks, that's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. Watchdog is a term given an organization like the United States Justice Foundation, which since 1979 has been watching out and, when necessary, taking the appropriate action from testifying to litigating to protect our constitutional rights. USJF, a nonprofit organization, is nationally recognized not only as a watchdog, but many in the government as well as those involved in legal cases have also called the USJF a bulldog for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right. Find out more at www.usjf.net. Support USJF as they support you. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. You are back listening to the Master Gardener Hour. I am the host of the show, Kate Copsey, and this morning we are talking California gardening with Claire Splain. And I know, Claire, that in the southwest, Tucson areas, I don't remember seeing people grow grass like the rest of us. So what about the the rest of California? Um, Do they have a love affair with lawns like the rest of us, or have they found it too difficult and do something totally different? Well, I think we're in a rather long transitional period with lawns. Um, I, you know, yes, you would typically see a lot of lawns here in California, and um, people do tend to get attached to their lawns. Um, I often hear people saying, well, I, I have to have a lawn because I have kids. Um, so, yeah, that's that's something that you would normally see, but... More and more, especially as um, the, the drought years come one after another, um, people are, are giving them up and realizing that they're, 
um, maybe just not worth it. I, I frankly have never been a big fan of lawn. I always felt like it was a lot of work for very little payoff. I mean, you, you have to put so much into maintaining them, and the best you can hope for is that it will lay there and be green. But um, I'd much rather give that space to, um, uh, to other plants. And that's what you see people doing a lot now. They're, they're going in for um, uh, xeriscape landscapes with low, low water uh, plants, and the water utilities are doing everything they can to encourage that. They're, um, uh, the, the utility in my area is um, sponsoring these Smother Your Lawn workshops and uh, doing as much as they can to educate people about how to kill their lawn and what to put in its place. And are there special varieties um, that work better, or or do they um, maybe do substitutes like a clover or maybe a creeping thyme or something like that as a substitute um, for a lawn to get that green effect without actually being grass per se? Um, There are... One thing I'm seeing is is like a, a no mow kind of lawn, um, where it's just a longer, more tufted kind of um, of grass. Uh, I think it's a I think it's a fescue of some kind. Um, so you do see those. You're also seeing um, artificial turf get installed because they have some ones now that look really realistic and they're very uh, easy maintenance and um, the, in fact they're becoming so popular last year I was um, uh, trying to get a, a house ready uh, a family member's house ready to put on the market and uh, wanted to get uh, a small area in the backyard installed with artificial grass um, and I couldn't Find someone to come out and and install it in the time frame I needed because they're so they were so busy um, doing it in other places. Mm. So they're becoming more and more popular. And uh, that I think I I mentioned actually in the book that it's something to consider if you have a small area of of lawn and you finally have accepted that maybe it's not worth the watering and and the maintaining. Uh, you might want to invest in a good quality artificial turf. You can put that way you can put your water and other resources into the plants surrounding it and yeah. uh, still have the nice But but kids but kids kid also need somewhere though to run and play. So you can't exactly substitute gravel in some er- areas um like adults could do maybe. Um, right. Yeah, so so how do you de- deal with with that particularly with young families and things? I mean, what I mean is a is a fescue may, maybe the most common thing to put down or do you have other options maybe a, a, a soft just soft under under play mats and things like that yeah i mean there are there are um ground covers i i don't know uh of too many ground covers that i think would stand up quite as well as what people would expect them to if they're going to get a lot of um, foot traffic and kids running around and digging in and all that um so uh you know, I think there are there are more options than there used to be, but you still have to be kind of realistic about what will work with um, the challenges you're going to present to it. Yeah, um, and that is, you know, like the, the artificial turf. I don't, not that I, I'm 
uh, want to be hyping <laughs> artificial <laughs> plants as a rule, but um, they do stand up well to um, to kids and dogs and all of that. So um, they they can be an, uh, something to consider. Yeah. Um, um, and so what about seasonal bugs and things? Um, we tend to go, go through, you know, we get June beetles and Japanese beetles that tend to be the end of June, July. Um, there, there are certain things that, that parade through the year, um, mm-hmm. lace wings in, in the azalea type. Do you, do you have a parade of, of different ones um, through the year or do, you have, do yours not only stay longer um, but all arrive at the same time year round? Um, it seems like they're heaviest in, in where I am in the spring, you know, when there's all that uh, nice tender growth. Um, and, and they're mostly the basic uh, culprits, the, the aphids, scale, uh, white fly, uh, mostly the sucking in that insects. Um, and I've, um, w- when I moved into my house 12 years ago, there was almost nothing growing here. There was... Uh, a few patches of lawn and um, a couple of sickly palm trees in, in pots, and that was it. So I, you know, have over the years been trying to build up the, just the amount of plants, um, and it's taken quite a while to then, you know, as soon as, as the green plants started coming in, the insects arrived to, to suck the life out of them, and it took a, a couple more years beyond that to get the beneficial insects in um, in enough numbers to kind of control the, the populations of aphids and scale. But um, they do pretty well now. They, they kind of keep things in check more or less. But, but from what I can ga- gather, the Japanese beetle hasn't found it yet. No, no, we're lucky. We, I, we don't have too much of a problem with those kinds of uh, of. Um, beetles you know we'll get the the tomato hornworm and those are pretty easy to uh, to spot and remove um those are you know the basic pests i frankly i'm i'm my bigger enemies right now are things like raccoons and squirrels ah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and uh, so far i haven't found a really foolproof way to take care of them Oh, my, my, mine's a groundhog, but... <laughs> ah. <laughs> and, and, of course, deer. We've got deer here as well. I think almost everybody in every part of the continent has got a friendly deer herd somewhere. <laughs> um, and, and another thing that we do, um, I guess, on a, a seasonal basis is pruning. Um, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of late winter pruning. Um, of mm-hmm. course, you don't do the spring bloom, blooming plants. Um, then you do kind of spring blooming of forsythias and things like that. Um, when is a good time maybe to prune um, over in California? Again, I guess it depends on where you are. Um, but what would be a good um, time maybe to do um, winter pruning? Because I would imagine even orange trees get too big sometimes. Yes. Um, I mean, this wouldn't be really the, the prime time to um, be uh, pruning citrus yet. But for, for deciduous trees and shrubs, this is the time now and into February. Um, although, as I said, because our dormant season is so um, iffy, I think it's, it's best to do it in January if you can get it all taken care of. And uh, I, I love pruning. I find it just very 
very calming and soothing to to my mind, but and it's also very healthy for the the plant. So um, I, I'm looking forward to probably um, this coming weekend will be when I start heading into getting my pruning done. I, I think we're going to be a little cool for pr- pruning for a little while yet, but I, I love going out on. Um, uh, a mild winter day when the sky's blue, the sun's out, and everything is still dormant. I mean, you can just prune li- the living day- daylights out of th- things like um, the um, the spring bro- blooming shrubs. Um, oh, sorry, not the spring blooming ones, but the later ones, like some of the later right. hydrangeas and things um, that get too big. Um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, pr- pruning, I think, is um, I, like you. I, I love doing pruning, and um, so so basically. Um, in in the year, I guess you've done a, a month by month type of guide for California gardens. Uh, what mm-hmm. is the biggest um, difference between, say, um, the north and the south? I mean, you have to adjust to which one. I mean, is it a, a six week difference between the north and the south? Not exactly. Um, it's you know, I found that the the most effective way or the clearest way to try to um, Break things down was just to refer things mostly by if you live in a in a harsh winter climate you do these certain things now if you live in a mild winter climate you do them maybe a month later or a month earlier and um, the same for the the summer issues you know if it's if it's a hot summer you do things at a certain time if it's um, a milder summer area then you do things in, in another time. Um, it, that seems to um, make more sense, I think, than just north or south, because uh, you know, even in, in the Central Valley, say it's it's uh, like I said, it can be extremely hot there in the summers, and also extremely cold in the winters. So it doesn't quite fit the mold of just north or south. And I, I think the heat factor um, in different areas, um, I, I always think that some, sometimes when we were down in Atlanta, I, I felt that if you put things in that little bit of, of shade, particularly for the hot afternoon, it made a big difference. It was almost like, like the plants and the humans both needed to retire um, inside right. when it got that hot. Right. And, um, uh, you know, again, if you go back to the, to the issue of microclimates, just even knowing what what corner of your garden is um, the warmest spot or the coolest spot can can uh, be a big help in knowing what might grow well there. If you plant against a, a southern facing wall or fence, or um, then you'll you're, that's most likely going to be one of the warmer areas in your garden, and you can uh, plant a, a more heat loving plant there that, and have it do better. Or if you find a, a spot in your garden maybe that's um, more low-lying, the cold air is going to hang there more, and you can take advantage of that by planting something that requires more chill. Um, so that can make a big difference in, in, um, in you know, your gardening success. It's, yeah. you know, and, it's, and, it's the same old mantra that we all know of uh, right plant, right place. Yeah, and, and knowing your guard, garden and, and what grows is obviously and which areas are better. Um, but, you know, we, we need to take our final commercial break here, but come back and listen to more about Claire's new book, um, which is a month-by-month gardening in California, and we will be right back. Quick Stakes, that's 
Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Do your children know where their food comes from? At ConnectingFarmToFork.com, there's all kinds of ways to help your child understand how 300 million of us here in America stay nourished, clothed, and healthy. Activities, food facts, and farm visits help young people learn about America's hardworking farmers and have lots of fun doing it. Visit ConnectingFarmToFork.com today for a learning experience that will really grow on you. ConnectingFarmToFork.com, brought to you by the people who care at Feedstuff's Food Link. Did you miss a show that you really wanted to hear? All of our programs are available for download on AmericasWebRadio.com and on iTunes. You can listen to your favorite programs on AmericasWebRadio.com anytime you like. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. you're enjoying the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We have been talking about gardening in California with Claire Splan. And Claire, your new book is um, the Month by Month book. Um, and that came out at the end of last year. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah, middle of December. And people can get that on Amazon as well as most bookstores. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that, how exactly is, is that organized? Is it literally a month by month, um, for lawns and, um, plants and shrubs and things? Or is it each shrub and then you, it gives a month by month for that type of thing? Well, there's, first of all, there's, um, a, a good amount of, of basic information, um, in the beginning of the book on, uh, soil management and things of that nature and, and the kind of tools that are helpful to have. And then each month um, the approach is to uh, to look at six different categories, planning, planting, caring, watering, fertilizing, and problem solving. And within each of those categories they're further broken down by, um, say, uh, edibles, um, perennials, trees, um, water gardens, house plants, uh, things of that nature. So um, the idea is to to take you know what's going on in the garden that month, things that you need to be aware of and pay attention to and take care of each month, and break it down into sort of bite-sized, manageable chunks, so that the garden becomes uh, for the the new or intermediate gardener becomes just a, a less intimidating place, and um, you can sort of map out how you need to um, be caring for your garden each month. So it's, a, it's actually a pretty good um, time management tool as well as a, as a gardening reference. And, and it's applicable whether you're in the north, the south, the, um, the uplands or the coast, right? It is. I mean, tried, I mean it, it, recognizing that it is, um, as we, we said at the very beginning, it's a, it's a huge amount of, uh, of uh, land that we're covering as well as um, variations in climate and topography. But 
um, within that context. We try to cover, um, you know, as much as we can and in a way that is people are going to be able to um, easily recognize whether it applies to their garden or not, um, that those kind of uh, cold winter, mild winter, hot summer, mild summer uh, references um, kind of help to clarify in just very simple terms um, whether this will apply to, to your region or not. And, and I would imagine that it's a lot more useful than some of those um, generic gardening books uh, that are supposed to cover everybody and in, in Atlanta we used to laugh about, about some of the container books that came out because some of the some of the containers that were supposed to be nationally available, sure you could get the plants but my goodness they would not they would croak in full sun <laughs> Right, right and I still find that um, so many uh, books that are out there seem to me to have um, more of a, a, a northeastern kind of approach to gardening um, and, you know, I'll still find so many things that, for instance, say, well, it's December now and you'll shut down your garden. And I'm standing there saying, wait a minute, <laughs> there's still a garden out here actively growing. I can't shut it down. And and you, you've got several other books out. Are they all California gardening books? Well, the, uh, I had a book that came out uh, two years ago that was California Fruit and Vegetable Gardening. And so those are my those are my two gardening books, and other writing I've done is just sort of uh, either fiction or nonfiction, uh, small pieces. And so, so um, the, the, these books are all basically um, for Californians that that, um, and they, they've all got California in the name, right? So they're specific to California. They wouldn't work in um, Florida. Uh, well, they're. They're meant to be regional. Um, there's, you know, some basic information. So where it's where it's specific is in in trying to guide people to say the varieties that work best in uh, California or the, um, uh, the just the, the the timing that works in California. Um, and there is, um, you know, the, the other book, like I said, is fruit and vegetable gardening. There is some overlap between this and the month by month. Um, uh, book in in terms of some some things are covered in in both, but not necessarily with the same approach. There's not a month by month approach in the fruit and vegetable gardening book, and the month by month uh, book you know takes on ornamentals and trees and and um, uh, lots of things besides edibles. Mm-hmm. And and I know that um, you've got a, a website. Um, what's the name of the the website? Well, I have a blog called An Alameda Garden that's at alamedagarden.blogspot.com. And I've been blogging there since 2006, which is actually how I started getting into the garden writing. Um, I was taking horticulture classes, and um, it happened to be an El Nino winter, uh, which meant that we were getting inundated with rain, and I was frustrated that I couldn't get out in the garden to actually do some of the things I was learning about doing. So I, I took my frustrations out in starting a blog, and uh, that was that was my entree into um, the world of garden writing. <laughs> yeah, um, and all the books are available on Amazon as well as um, in bookstores, I would assume. Um, so, but do you, if somebody wanted, for instance, a signed copy, um, do you do talks or something in the area that people could make where you sell the books as well, and you could give a signed copy? I do. I, I'm uh, planning this this year, um, particularly in the first half of the year, 
to try to go um, to quite a bit of um, as much of the, the state as I can, um, going to libraries and uh, garden clubs and other other places to do talks and sign books. And um, we have the San Francisco Flower and Garden Show coming up in the middle of March, and I'll be doing a talk there along with um, my friend Jennifer Altman, who is a uh, chef and culinary instructor. And we'll be doing a, a presentation, a sort of garden-to-table presentation about citrus. So I'll be talking about um, growing citrus in, in the home garden, and she'll be talking about preserving it and using it in recipes. And how, how many of the talks that you do are open to the, the general public? Um, are there some of those that, that people could maybe just, just turn up to? Uh, I know usually garden clubs tend to be um, restricted to members. They can be sometimes. Some uh, some do actually publicize their their talks and and will open it up to the public. Um, and I, like I said, I do. Uh, I'm gotten in touch with a number of libraries now, and I'm trying to set up dates um, for uh, for talks. And I do have a Facebook page that's um, California Gardening Books, and uh, I'll be posting there um, any talks that I give. Oh, great! So good way to keep track of me and 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 that that's on on the fa- facebook pay- page um and what what is the address of the facebook page is it under your name or is it under the book's name it's uh the the page name is under california gardening books oh okay um and and so so is, you say that's a, a new page um and but people can maybe ask questions there too and as well as find out where you're going to be absolutely and i'm also um on uh, goodreads um, as a Goodreads author, and you can ask me questions through them as well. And and if somebody wanted to invite you to their garden club to give a talk or their garden event, um, how would they contact you? Would they do that again through the Facebook page? Um, you could do it through the Facebook page. Um, I'm listed also under a website called greatgardenspeakers.com, um, and they can find me there and, and get in touch with me, or they can get in touch with me um, through the email address that they can find on the blog, which is alamedagarden.blogspot.com. Okay. Um, and we've got maybe um, just a minute or two left, Claire. Um, so I'm, I'm wondering um, what would... If you had maybe a couple of tips for... Somebody maybe was come, come in, was brand new to gardening or brand new to California gardening, um, what would be the top two things that they ought to really pay attention to um, before they put the, the fork in the ground? Ah, um, I would say the first thing to pay attention to is to maybe go down to the, the uh, garden center and buy a very simple um, soil test kit and run a, a basic soil test to see what kind of... Uh, uh, levels they have of of uh, the, the the macronutrients in their in a garden, and to see what the pH level is going to be, and that will help them know how to proceed, what how they want to amend the garden soil or not. Um, and then I would say just uh, go talk to their local nurseries and um, make friends with the, the folks who work there, and they'll give them a lot of really good guidance on. Um, what grows in their specific area. 
And I, I think go, going to um, other gardens as well, also. Um, oh, yeah. Um, do, do you have pu- public gar- gardens um, regularly spread out through the, the town so that, or, or the state so that people can maybe see mature um, specimens growing? We do. We have um, lots of great um, or several great botanical gardens and um, uh, just in the Bay Area alone, and I know all throughout the state there are a number of good ones, and um, some uh, also old established uh, gardens that are open to the public. Oh, and, and say so I, I think that that's a great way of seeing um, how how something actually grows because it's so different when when you go to a nursery, you see this thing thing in a half gallon container um, and 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 it looks nothing you know you think it's going to stay that way and then two years down down the road it's t- taken over the window um, right so i think it's important to to go go see that and particularly with california being so so different um and i, I guess with people um really know um what to grow it it it's so different from the rest of us um and and, and your birds and everything is are so different as well Right, and the the garden tours that always pop up in the springtime are are a great opportunity as well to learn what really works in your area. Oh yes, garden tours are, are they're great fun. <laughs> yes. Oh yes, I, I I love going on because you see private gardens as well mm-hmm. and see see what people are doing. Um, but uh, we kind of that, that's about all we've got time for this morning. Unfortunately, um, I, I envy you being able to grow for such a long time, particularly as I'm looking out at snow and rain. Um, uh. <laughs> but that, thank thank you for being here, Claire. It's been it's been a great talk and good luck with the with the book over there. Um, Thanks very much, Kate. It was great talking to you. Yes. Um, And everybody, that's all we've got time for today. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Master Gardener Hour this morning. We'll be back next week with another show talking all about gardening and gardens. Uh, Have a good gardening week, everyone, and join me back here next Saturday. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.